You're listening to Pastor Rory Rogers as he teaches through the book of Luke. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn there now. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, as we just come to this text that is um, controversial, uh, the church has ignored it, uh, the church has um, skirted around it. Lord, I've been dreading uh, teaching on it just in my knowing my weakness. Uh, But Lord, we want to be faithful to teach the whole counsel of the Word of God. I pray that you would just give us humble hearts. Lord, I come just in humility, praying you teach through me, teach these people, and teach me, Lord. Uh, Lord, I pray that after this study, we would just be looking up, eagerly awaiting your return. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Luke chapter 21 is... uh, a chapter in the Gospels called the Olivet Discourse. You can read the Olivet Discourse in Matthew, in Mark, and in Luke. Uh, it, like I prayed, you know, it's been a long time coming for the last two and a half months. Um, I've been studying and praying and, you know, crying out to God that he would just help me in teaching this uh, subject. Um, it, it's... You know, we've had various Sundays where teachings on fasting and teaching of rejoicing on fastings and this and that. And, and finally, we're kind of back into walking through Luke uh, again. And so uh, it's, it's been a long time coming. One girl came up to me at first service and said, uh, you know, oh, you're teaching on it today? My family had a bet going on to when you finally were going to teach it. And so here we are. Hopefully someone made some big cash because um, you knew I'd get there someday. But as we get into Luke chapter 21, there's four things in the scripture that we're told not to be ignorant of. And wouldn't you figure, these are four things that the church is ignorant on. Uh, One of these things is the sufferings of the apostles. Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant of our sufferings, which we suffered in Asia. Uh, That can even be transferred to today when the Hebrew author says, you know, remember those who are in chains and pray for them as if you were chained right there with them. We have many brothers and sisters who are suffering in the same way Paul did. And just how the church is ignorant of that today. Um, We're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 not to be ignorant of the Old Testament And just how many people in the church, I'd say in this church, in this room, are ignorant of the Old Testament. It's too hard to understand, or there's too many numbers, or too many long genealogy chapters, you know, or I just, so I just don't go there. I just don't read it. The New Testament's for me, you know, and, uh, but we're not to be ignorant because Paul tells us these things serve as examples for us. What to do, what not to do. Uh, there's so much good stuff in the Old Testament that, that's inspired by God that to train, to equip, to correct, uh, for doctrine, for rebuking, you know, for instruction in all righteousness. That's the Old Testament, but we're ignorant of it. First Corinthians chapter 12 tells us not to be ignorant of spiritual gifts. And yet because people are you know, oh, they get nervous when you start talking about spiritual gifts and they're afraid that you're going to sweat a little when you talk about it. So let's just ignore that one. And while we're at it, let's ignore topics such as divorce, confronting your brother, homosexuality, the inspiration of scriptures, uh, you know, the end times uh, and everything else. Female pastors, let's just, you know what, let's just not open our Bible anymore. You know, um, there's this funny YouTube video where uh, uh, this youth pastor comes, he's a guest speaker and he has all the kids in the youth group raise their Bibles up over their heads. Say, raise your Bible up over your head with me and repeat after me. The word of God, the word of God is living, is living and powerful and powerful and is more and is more than I am able to deal with at this time. Okay, now put them under your chair. You won't need them here, you know, but no, that's not the case here. We need them here. We need our Bibles and we want to be faithful to go verse by verse through and understand um, what God has breathed out for us. Uh, whether it's the Old Testament, where, whether it's spiritual gifts. Uh, and then finally, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, Paul tells us he doesn't want us to be ignorant of the rapture or really the end times is the context there. He doesn't want us to be ignorant of the end times. Now, uh, sometimes people, you know, it's not that they have a, a cruel agenda so they don't teach eschatology, the study of end things. 
but they're ignorant. They just ignore it. They just pretend like it's not there. And that just shouldn't be so within the church. And so today we will attempt to accomplish a less ignorant state of the latter of end times as we study Jesus's uh, discourse on the end of the age. Um, we won't avoid these passages just because they're controversial. And it's good to have dialogue with others who hold different views of Bible prophecy. Now, if you don't like Bible prophecy, then you're going to have to rip out a quarter of your Bible. Uh, seven out of ten chapters in the New Testament speak of the second coming. It's actually spoken of more than the first coming of Christ. 1,845 verses speak specifically of the second coming. 17 Old Testament books have the second coming as its central theme. Uh, and one reason why we study Bible prophecy in this church is because so much of it has already been fulfilled. And it's so exciting, as Oswald Sanders put it, you know, his past faithfulness demands our present trust. We can look back and see all of the prophecy that he's been faithful to fulfill. And we can look at the ones that don't seem to have been fulfilled yet and say, he's going to do it. He's going to do it. The promises of God are yes and amen, as, as Paul put it. We can have great confidence because so much has been fulfilled. Um, the, the future will be fulfilled as well. Peter Stoner was a mathematician from Westmont College. And he wrote in his book, Science Speaks, calculating the odds of any man in history fulfilling the 330 prophecies of Jesus directly fulfilled in his first coming. The odds of just eight of these prophecies, like the virgin birth or him being born in Bethlehem or the family going down to Egypt, would be one in 10 to the 17th power. So for any man to just fulfill eight prophecies that Jesus did is one in 10 to the 17th power. He illustrated this in his book by saying you could stack silver dollars two feet thick across the whole state of Texas and take a blindfolded man and have him pick a silver dollar with an X on it out of all of those silver dollars within the state of Texas. For a man to fulfill 48 of these prophecies would be one in 10 to the 157th power. And it's difficult to paint the picture of how vast that number is. Um, so he says, if you were to take a one inch long row of electrons and count them 250 electrons per minute nonstop, I don't think I can use you know, nonstop, it would take you 19 million years to count them. Now, that's not even scratching the surface. Technically, it would be a cubed inch of electrons that we would need to count. So 19 million times 19 million times 19. Uh, that's how long we would be counting uh, to try and even fulfill, to get the picture of um, someone fulfilling 48 prophecies. But Jesus fulfilled 330. You know what that says? Jesus is God. Jesus is God. He's Lord. He's not just a good man in history. He's not just a prophet. He's not just a cuss word, you know. Uh, he's not that at all, actually. He shouldn't be. But he's Lord. He's God. And every word that he speaks will be established, will be fulfilled. Every little punctuation point in space in his words, it's, it's not going to pass away, but will be fulfilled. Uh, one um, apologist it was either Josh McDowell or Peter Stoner offered $10,000 if anyone could find someone who fulfilled half the prophecies Jesus did. So those of you that are unemployed today, that's, that would be a good little task for you. You know, start researching, get on the internet. Um, you know, Daniel, the book, I can't wait to get into it with you guys. The prophecies are so specific that, uh, you know, King Cyrus from Persia was... Um, prophesied of hundreds of years before he was born his name was prophesied of by name that he would deliver israel or judah from the babylonians you know there, there's such specific prophecies it just causes us to just be in awe these prophecies fulfilled validate the gospel they're wonderful proofs to the testimony of jesus and so as we get into eschatology or end times 
Um, I want to give you guys some vocab words, okay? Some end time vocabulary. So children, get out your notebooks or at least turn your brain on. Okay, remember, you know, remember what Rory says now because here's your vocab. Now, eschatology, the study of end things, okay? But number one, the word word for today is um, rapture, okay? Rapture. Now, uh, flip over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16 through 18. And as you're flipping there, let me just say that the rapture refers to the time when the church is caught up in the clouds to meet Jesus in the air. Okay? So when the church is caught up in the clouds to meet Jesus in the air. Now look at, look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16 through 18. It says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up, underline that, caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. So, That word caught up that I had you underline or that phrase is the Greek word harpazo, which means to catch up or to snatch away by force. Um, In the Latin, it's the word raptus, which is where we have adapted the word rapture. Okay, now a lot of people say rapture is not in the Bible. And yes, you're right. Um, We got it from the Latin word. So whether you want to call it rapture or the caught up or the catching away of the church or whatever you want to call it. Um, there we have it there in first Thessalonians. So some things about the rapture there, um, during that period, all of the dead who are already in Christ, they will rise first. Uh, in other words, right now they're in the presence of Jesus, but their bodies are going to be caught up to the heavens where they will be made instantly into these new heavenly habitations, these new bodies that we always talk about. That's, that's right before we're shot up. Okay. Then we'll meet them in the air. Um, Notice there, it's a comforting thing to talk about the rapture. It's comforting to know that one day we'll be with our loved ones again. It's comforting to know that one day we'll be with Jesus. Then flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51. Please flip there. Don't don't get confused. It's so much easier when you're there. 1 Corinthians 15, 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep or die. It's kind of cool. A mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. So something we know about the rapture is it's a snatching away that happens in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. And um, I know I have it somewhere in my notes, but doctors say something like, uh, the twinkling of an eye is like one one thousandth of a second, you know, it's how fast your eye can flutter or something like that or twinkle. And uh, so, you know, that's that's the, the speed of which the snatching away will take place. So vocab word number one, and I'm just giving you the word. I'm just giving you a definition. Rapture uh, vocab word number two. Don't you love being in school again? I liked vocab. I did OK at it. As you can tell, I have quite an extensive vocabulary. Ron, don't give me that, Mr. Editor of the newspaper. Okay, I don't think he really is, but. (laughs) Tribulation, word number two, tribulation. Tribulation speaks of a catastrophic event. Uh, The time of tribulation is also known as Jacob's troubles or Israel's troubles, Uh, Jacob's sorrows. It's also known as Daniel's 70th week. And next week, we'll get into Daniel's 70th week. We've got a slideshow and help you understand um, Daniel's prophecy concerning the tribulation. It's exciting stuff. But lots of scriptures speak about the tribulation, uh, this catastrophic event. Now, the tribulation is a seven-year period where God pours out his wrath on a Christ-rejecting world. There will be destruction that's worse than anything the world has ever seen. In fact, we'll read as we go through the Olivet Discourse that if God wouldn't, uh, that God is going to have to stop this destruction 
or else all of mankind and every, every living creature and everything alive on earth would be wiped out and obliterated. So even as God is pouring out his wrath on a Christ-rejecting world, he has mercy and stops. But it's going to be horrific, something like the earth has never seen and never will see after it. The tribulation is a time used to bring Israel to their senses, you know, to make, help them realize that they've rejected the Messiah and it's going to cause them to run to Jesus, realizing that he is uh, who they's, they've always been looking for. Uh, Daniel chapter nine, verse 24, we'll study it more in the weeks to come, but here's, here's one thing about the tribulation period and just listen to this, this period is for your people and your holy city. So it's for the Jews and Jerusalem to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. So this horrible time of of absolute horrific Judgment on the world for seven years is going to end in Israel bowing their knee to Jesus, the Messiah. It's going to be the time that the end of Israel's sins finally takes place. It's going to be the time that they're redeemed by the real Messiah. They're going to anoint the most holy, Daniel says. So that's a little bit about the tribulation, a seven-year period. Third vocab word or phrase is the second coming. Okay, the second coming. The second coming is when Jesus comes back to the earth in victory after the tribulation and sets his feet on the Mount of Olives. He destroys his enemies and judges the nations. Uh, You can read about it in Matthew 24, Revelation 19, Zechariah 14 is a beautiful account of what's going to happen as he comes and sets his feet on the Mount of Olives. And it says there that when Jesus comes down, that all of Israel will look on him whom they pierced and they will mourn over him as one mourns for his only son, because they're going to realize that, oh my gosh, We've been waiting for this Messiah for thousands of years. And when he finally came, we rejected him because of our self-righteousness and our pride and our arrogance. And we killed him. And then we kept looking for somebody else. And then finally, you know, we, we bowed the knee to this or, the, you know, this Antichrist guy came on the scene. And then he tried to kill us all. And, and finally, here, here you are coming in the clouds. And they'll mourn that they screwed everything up that they messed up so badly in rejecting the Messiah. Now, as we talk about rapture, tribulation, second coming, there's a lot of different views onto when the rapture might happen. Okay, there's what you would call a pre-tribulation view, that before this time of God's wrath, God pulls his bride up out of the um, earth, much like he pulled Noah and his family and saved them from the flood or pulled Enoch off of the earth and saved him from the flood and uh, because of his righteousness. Uh, so there's those that believe that there's a pre-tribulation rapture. There's some that believe in a mid-tribulation rapture. Uh, then there's some that believe in a post-tribulation rapture that when Jesus comes and sets his feet on the earth to rule and reign as he's coming in the clouds we're raptured and shot over there and then come and and you know land on the earth to rule and reign with him then so a post-trib rapture state um i'm just going to share in humility and i'm learning i'm growing uh to the best of my understanding um i tend to land towards the pre-trib rapture Um, but I certainly don't expect you guys to, you are all sensible people with Bibles and brains in your head and you need to research it yourself. And, um, and I'm, I'm not going to be dogmatic about it. I'm not going to make fun of you if you hold a different view because I'm growing and I'm learning. And we'll talk about that just a little bit more in a second. Uh, the fourth and final vocab word is millennium or millennial reign of Christ. Okay. Uh, You read about this in Revelation chapter 20 as well as Ezekiel and all throughout Isaiah. 
And the millennium is an a thousand year period millennium. You guys know since we are in the 2000s now, that was a big word a couple years ago. Um, It's a a thousand year period where Jesus sets up his kingdom here on earth and we rule and reign with him in this world. Uh, It's a very interesting time as you study it, as the world has been restored to its pre-fall state. You know, the whole lion will lay down with the lamb type of thing. And, you know, a a man who lives to be a hundred years at that point will, will seem like a young man. You know, just very interesting things happen as Satan is bound and thrown into the pit and, uh, it doesn't have any control for a thousand years. Jesus is in control. So, uh, that's the millennium. And, you know, just in studying, there are, very brilliant men that, you know, believe that we're living in the millennium now. There's men that believe we're in the tribulation now. Uh, there's men that believe that there will never be a literal millennium on the earth, but that it's happening right now in heaven. And I disagree with all those guys, but in a humble way that uh, just says, I, I just don't see it that way. I, I can't wrap my mind around that, but I see it in a different way. So, and as you guys get to know me as the years go by and as I still learn, we're just going to go through all sorts of fun scripture like this and we'll all grow together. How's that sound? Does that work? Okay. Sorry. I wish, I wish I could say I've got it all figured out, but your elders did a horrible job picking me, um, to having me come here. But I'll tell you, man, I have, I've been stretched. I've been growing in these last few months. Um, when it comes to eschatology, um, the study of end times, it's so important not to become unduly dogmatic to the point of causing division. Okay. You know, there's, there's an old saying that in the essentials, we have to have unity who Jesus is, you know, the Trinity, the resurrection, the inspiration and inerrancy of the scriptures, you know, but then there's certain things that, you know, that they're non-essentials to salvation. And we wrestle through the, tr- the text trying to gain understanding of it. And eschatology is one of those things. And we'll just wrestle with each other. We'll grow. We'll, we'll, you know, we'll in love have open dialogue on these subjects. You know, um, I've just been finding that there are many brilliant genius men with doctorates from Bible colleges who love Jesus and love his word and want to rightly represent God. And they hold to a totally different view of eschatology than I do. You know, I used to get all fired up and make fun of people who had different positions than I did. And I'd make jokes when I would teach about, you know, as we shoot up into the sky, I'll show in your face how wrong you were about the rat, you know, whatever. And just pride, pride and arrogance in my opinions. And I'm just learning like, man, here's these awesome guys that are just laboring and trying, trying to understand, you know, and, um, you know, when, when it came to understanding the millennium, one professor said that, you know, man, the millennium is that 1000 year period of peace that everyone feels they have to fight about, you know, are we in the millennium? Is it going to be, is it coming to the earth and heaven? Oh, you jerk, you know, and just fighting and wrestling and biting each other's ears, you know? And, and, um, I just, I don't think the Lord's pleased with that. Does he like open conversation and discussion and let's search the scriptures, let's sharpen each other and, and all of that. Yes, but, but if it causes division and anger and hatred and bitterness, uh, that's not a fruit of the Spirit. You can read about all that in Galatians chapter 5. And so I want to confess to you, as it's quite obvious, this will be quite a few weeks, uh, a week, week series of eschatology. I just confess, I don't have it all figured out. Um, I watched a, a video online called An Evening of Eschatology, where four doctorates in, men with doctorates in theology uh, spent three hours arguing with each other, uh, different eschatological positions. Uh, the neat thing is, is they did it in love. They started out the whole special evening affirming their love towards one another, what the gospel was, you know, the important things, who Jesus is. And then when it got into the end time, man, they had the freedom to interrupt each other and open the scriptures. And, you know, one guy would talk that was just like, whoa. And the other three would be like, you're crazy, man. I don't know where you drum that idea up, you know. And But by the end of this three hours, you know, as I was trying to take notes and all I did was draw an arrow to another arrow, which circled back to this other arrow and pictures of churches shooting up into heaven. And no, I I like to draw. No, I don't. Um, 
as it all came down to the end, you know, they're even joking as they're, as they're conversing, you know, they're like, man, look at us. We're, we're all red faced and sweaty and all fired up. And you know, the, the mediator, John Piper was like, man, I didn't think you guys were going to be this fired up about this, you know? And, and, but at the end, they all just took a deep breath and, and they all went around and they just said, you know, this is awesome. <laughs> You know, that we sharpen each other, you know, that our rough edges are being filed off and and we are challenged to prove it, prove it from the word. You know, if you have the word, then you have leverage for dialogue. If you don't have the word, you have nothing. And so it's okay to have these times of of stretching and uh, sharpening each other. But yeah, these four guys, they just ended it by saying, I don't have it all figured out, but I love studying God's word. And, um, you know, but Kevin and I were talking this week, you know, could you imagine what we'd be like if we all had it figured out? If reading the Bible was no more difficult than reading a Berenstein Bears book, you know, and cute little rhymes, you know, and pink ribbons and flowers. And, you know, like we would be so prideful and arrogant and no one could tell us anything. But as we read through the scriptures and we get to these passages that are all over that, you know, we have to drop to our knees two and a half months before we even get to this Bible study and plead with God to help. Give me understanding. Help me to be able to teach it. Please let the rapture happen before I have to teach it, you know. Uh, And it just humbles you, you know, it humbles you. And just to hear other pastors that come to different passages and just say, man, as I get before you today, I have no clue what I'm talking about. I've spent hours studying and let's just have the worship band come back up. I need another week, you know, Um, that's okay, you know. Um, but these times are, are humbling and, and it's good to have a humble heart when you study eschatology. Uh, one of these men, um, who was, uh, didn't believe in the pre-trib rapture, uh, he said during this, uh, dialogue, he said, you know, I'm not opposed to changing my theological position in midair, <laughs> you know, I was like, that's great. You know, that's awesome. You know, that we would just have open hands concerning this stuff. Like, Lord, it's all a mess right here in my hands. You know, you do it. You know, I just, I put my trust in you and to have a humble heart like that's awesome. Billy Graham said, you know, that we should pray for a pre-trib rapture and we should prepare for a post, you know, Lord, I don't want to go through that time of wrath poured out on the world. I, I don't want to have my head cut off, you know, or my kids heads cut off for the gospel's sake. I don't want to go through this time of wrath that's poured out on the earth that, that it's never, you know, please come for your bride. <laughs> Come for your bride. I love you, Lord. I just want to be, you know, uh, comfort one another in these words. You know, pray for pre, uh, prepare for post. Wish I could give you more than that. Yeah, we're done today. No, I'm kidding. Um, so as we get to Luke chapter 21, we are studying the Olivet Discourse. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all write of this discourse. And the purpose of it is to awaken us and to cause us to look up for his coming. Matthew tells us in in the Olivet Discourse to watch, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. We need to be watchful. We need to be waiting. We need to be praying. The Olivet Discourse is also an encouragement for perseverance in the midst of hard times that are going to come upon Israel. And so as we look at verse 5, before we even get there... You know, what has been happening is Jesus has come into Jerusalem. He's been there for a few days. It's Passion Week. In fact, it's a day before he's going to be delivered over uh, by Judas Iscariot. Uh, You remember Jesus has been spending time in the temple. He's cleansed the temple. He's been teaching in the temple. Uh, You remember that he, in Matthew chapter 23, did this whole chapter on the woes to the Pharisees, those self-righteous jerks, you know. And you remember he rebuked them for devouring widows' houses. That these widows whose husbands die, you know, they, they would go to the temple and, and they would uh, give their inheritance and, and all that they had from their estate to the temple, thinking that the priests and the leaders would take care of them when they wouldn't. They'd just spend it on their own pleasures. They'd devour widows' houses. Well, right after that, you remember that Jesus saw the woman as he looked across the treasury. He saw the little widow woman, you know, putting in her two last pennies into the offering plate. And all around her were men dumping in out of all of their wealth, just dumping it in. And all she had left, she put in there. And he commended her for that. You see that woman? She put in all of her livelihood. Those other guys just put in out of their abundance. And this woman's gift is so recognized by me. And so as you look here at verse 5 in Luke chapter 21, um, this is right after that. 
He sees the widow woman. And it says there in verse 5, Then as some spoke of the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and donations, he said, These things which you see, the days will come in which not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Matthew's gospel says that, that the, um, they were walking around the temple and, and they said, Teacher, see what manner of buildings these are around the temple. See how beautiful they are, the stonework. You know, they were like little country bumpkins coming to the big city. Wow, look at all the, the gold and the stonework and the, the, all the people and the pomp and circum, the, the religious pomp that's happening here. And you know what Jesus says as he watches this little widow get defrauded in front of his eyes? He says, you see all this garbage? You see all this gold? You see all these self-righteous men who think they're something, but they're nothing? It's all going to be torn down. Not one stone's going to be left. I am sick of these poor little people getting trodden over. There's no love. There's no mercy. There's no compassion. There's just a bunch of religion here. It's gone. Okay, so I didn't, I didn't really like the, the temple stuff. It's a little over the top for me. You know, Jesus, I'm with you. But, you know. <laughs> But, you know, no doubt the disciples were astounded by this religious pomp, the buildings, you know, that Jerusalem and the temple offered. Matthew 24 says they were showing him all the buildings. You know, let's look around. We walked all the way over here. Let's, let's have a tour. You know, Herod's temple was one of the archaeological wonders of the world of that time. It had massive stones and gold and marble everywhere. And wow, look at all the buildings they have for God here. And Jesus is like, they're not for me. They're not for God. They're for themselves. And so Jesus says there in verse six, you know, you, these things which you see, the day will come in which not one stone will be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Look over there in Luke 19, 44, a couple chapters earlier, as Jesus is coming towards Jerusalem, it had the possibility of being the, the day that all Israel declared him the Christ and kept it that way in their hearts, but he knew that it wasn't going to end that way. And as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Now, the temple mount, you know, the, the temple sat on top of Mount Moriah. Okay. And on the top of the mountain, they put this big platform and on top of the platform, they built the temple. Uh, the temple mount was 40 acres across and the stones that made up this platform were so huge. One stone was discovered that was about 40 feet long and weighed 400 tons. Just this massive stone. You guys have seen those big cranes, you know, in the city that work on the skyscrapers. Those things lift up, you know, at max five tons, you know. And so imagine how back then they just did every, all the work with their six-pack abs and their big biceps, you know. Push the rock, you know, push the rock. Someone should invent a wheel. Um, but they, they were so huge. Even the retaining wall on the southeast corner of the Temple Mount was 158 feet from the bottom to the top. And then above that, it was 90 feet to the top of the temple. So just this, this massive space. Uh, uh, view as you would come into Jerusalem, Josephus says that the temple was so large and beautiful and so shiny that a person coming to Jerusalem could see it from 30 miles away. And even today, as you go into Jerusalem, the, the Dome of the Rock, the Muslim mosque is there with that goldish looking top. And it's so shiny too, you know, you come in there and just boom, it hits your eyes. But the temple was way bigger than the Dome of the Rock. You can only imagine just the shine, uh, especially the Shekinah glory of God there. Just what an incredible uh, uh, sight to see. And so the disciples were in awe as they looked at the buildings, but their jaw dropped even more when Jesus told them it would all be torn down. And indeed, not one word of God failed. In 70 AD, the temple was destroyed. And most of you know how that happened. In 70 AD, uh, the Roman general Titus uh, came in and was besieging Jerusalem. And he specifically stated that he didn't want the temple destroyed. There was too much gold in there. There was too many treasures. Uh, they really needed to take, take care of this, uh, this building. 
When one of the soldiers accidentally, some say accidentally, some say in a drunken stupor, uh, threw a torch inside the temple and the temple lit on fire. And all of the gold, millions and millions of dollars worth of gold, melted in the temple and began to seep between the, the cracks in the stones. So that by the time the fire was over, they had to take every rock off the temple and chisel out the gold. And they would cast these massive, you know, some stones like the size of a car. They'd throw off the temple mount and chisel off the gold and throw the rock off the temple mount, chisel the gold, throw the rock to get all of that gold out of there. And it's just incredible as you go to Jerusalem today, within the last 30 years, they've come underneath the topsoil and they found this, these big piles of rocks that had just been thrown off. Original temple stones from Herod's temple. And you go, I got pictures of myself standing by them. And check me out by this cool rock, you know. And um, just incredible to see that Jesus was speaking the truth. Josephus, you'll, you hear me mention him. He was a Hebrew who was taken captive by the Romans as a historian to document this whole conquest of the Romans. And he wrote that the destruction of Jerusalem was so bad that you couldn't tell that the city was inhabited or that there was ever a temple. The whole city was completely laid waste. Jesus prophesied that they build a siege mound and they would just, you know, if you had 15 D8 cats, you couldn't have done a better job of of just completely destroying uh, the face of Jerusalem. And so Jesus' prophecy was fulfilled there in 70 A.D., and so in verse 7, you know, uh, the disciples know that, man, if the, if the temple's going to be destroyed, that means the end of Judaism as we know it. I mean, we know when Babylon, Babylon took us out, I mean, that just that ruined everything. And so, man, a lot of questions began to go through their mind, and they asked him, saying, Teacher, but when will these things be? And what sign will there be when these things are about to take place? And then Matthew's gospel tells us they asked another question, and when will be the end of the age? So when will these things be? When will the temple be destroyed? Uh, What will be the sign of your coming? And what will be the end of your age? Uh, Matthew tells us that Peter, James, John, and Andrew went up on the mountain and asked them this question. So four disciples, and that it then began this two chapter long teaching discourse by Jesus on the end times. And um, it's called the Olivet Discourse. And it's the longest recorded answer in Bible in the Bible. Flip over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1. As we're asking, you know, what, what will be the signs of these things, the signs of the end of the age? 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1. But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman. You might underline that. Labor pains upon a pregnant woman. And they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness so that this day should overtake you as a thief. Man, we have the scriptures, we have the words of Jesus, we have the context of scripture to at least begin understanding the end times, you know, to, to attempt. And um, we can look at the signs of the times. There is, it says, you know, they're, they're like labor pains upon a pregnant woman. And Jesus is going to go into these signs in the Olivet Discourse. And in fact, he says in Matthew's gospel that, these signs are just the beginning of birth pangs. Now, those of you that have had babies or that have been around pregnant gals, you know that when women are pregnant or in the process of just about to give birth, that they get bigger. That's one of the things, at least in this general region. I'm not saying anything about any other regions, but right here, they get bigger. No doubt about it. Okay. They get bigger. There's movement. You know, I remember the first time I felt Russell kick, I'd never put my hand on another woman's belly, you know, so I was like, okay, well, this will be interesting, you know, and, and, uh, boom to feel, you know, Russell, bam. Oh yeah, that's awesome. But then as nine months came along, you know, it was not so much of a little think, you know, it was like, let me out of here, you know? And that's exactly how it is with Bible prophecy as you study the signs. You know, Jesus, he's going to say, you know, a lot of these things have always been happening, but it's been sporadic little binks, 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 binks. 
you know, but he says, but as time gets closer for the birth to happen, it's, let me out, you know, and sorry, too many cartoons, you know, what else about pregnancy? There's a specific gestation period. You know, the Lord knows when the birth is going to happen. Um, and there's new pain as you get closer to the birthday, a new pain that is more frequent and more intense that causes you to say, Get in the car, you know, it's time to go to the hospital. And so they become more frequent, more intense, although they've always taken place more frequent, more intense. And so let's look at, um, I thought I was doing way better than I was first service, but no, we're about the same place. Um, Let's look at verse eight. And he said, take heed that no one or that you not be deceived for many will come in my name saying, I am he. And the, tri- uh, and the time has drawn near. Therefore, do not go after them. So one of the signs of the end of the times is that many are going to try to deceive you concerning his coming. But as we will read later, this is not an event that you want to be caught off guard at. You know, many will come in Jesus's name. And so there's a great need for discernment and hearts that will test all things according to the word of God. You guys need to test all of my Bible studies that I give you according to the word, not about, well, Rory's a nice guy, so let's just believe him. Uh Uh-uh, I am not a nice guy. Don't believe me. Be like the Bereans in Acts chapter 17, verse 11, who after Paul would teach them, they would go home with their notes and search the scriptures to see if these things were so. And as men will come on the scene, nice men, men wearing suits and sunglasses and driving nice cars, great guys, probably, you know, could not hurt a fly. They're deceivers. You test everything they say according to the scriptures. Any shepherd who loves his flock will warn of spiritual deception In Acts chapter 20, Paul uh, knew that savage wolves were going to come and not spare the flock. And he wept to the elders and said, watch out, watch out for these wolves. And, you know, there've always been false Christs. You know, you read about it in 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. That's a big part of John is defending the one true Christ in the midst of all these false ones. There's always been false Christs, but it's been on the rise in the last 60 years. Uh, Dr. Charles Steinberg wrote that in the first 100 years after Jesus, no less than 64 men came on the scene claiming to be the Messiah. They gained some notoriety and led some men into battle against the Romans and were slaughtered. So, bummer. (laughs) You know, guess that didn't work out for them. But in the last 60 years, there have been over 1,500 people who've publicly claimed to be the Messiah and have made a historical note of their claim. Uh, 1965, a man named Daniel Wasawa in Kenya said that he was Jesus coming again, and so he told his followers to crucify him publicly, and he died. If he knew anything about Jesus, he would have known that Jesus already died, and then when he was going to come back, that's the time for him to rule and reign. But the guy didn't know the scriptures uh, even himself. Uh, There was in the 70s uh, a 15-year-old boy from India who claimed to be the Messiah. His followers called him the Lord of Heaven in a 747 as he flew around the world claiming to be a young Messiah. But as he enjoyed the life of traveling, he began to eat foods he wasn't supposed to eat, got big and overweight, and started uh, having relationships with one of the stewardesses on his flight. So his mom dubbed his next brother the new Lord of Heaven in the 747. And so just let's just pick messiahs out of the crowd here, shall we? Um, and you can look it up online. It's just incredible how this guy has a following, like big following, like he can fly a 747? <laughs> what is the deal with that? More recently, uh, based out of Orlando, Florida, but has a huge ministry in Latin America and in much of the United States, Dr. De Ge- uh, Portuguese came out there, Jesus Miranda, uh, is a man who claimed he's the reincarnation of Jesus Christ on earth. He speaks to hundreds and hundreds of followers all over the place, And he tells them, sin no longer exists. God doesn't see people as sinners, but as perfect spirits. There's no devil. He's a Hollywood creation. And that prayer is a waste of time. The one practice he doesn't dismiss is the practice of passing around the collection plate. He takes cars, estates, 
homes inside gated communities, which he sold for millions of dollars. And when asked on the Today Show if he's a cult, he responds, if it's a cult, it's the best cult I've ever seen. He teaches a different gospel, the freedom to indulge. Because he teaches that there's no sin, no devil, and no hell to pay. The church is called Crescendo in Gracia, or Growing in Grace Ministry. Doesn't Growing in Grace Ministry sound something that would be on like the Calvary Satellite Network or something, you know? Oh, the, oh, I go to Growing in Grace Ministries, you know? Well, that's great, but what the heck do they teach there, you know? Do they teach the Bible? Do they teach that Jesus is the only God? Do they have some wacko who's claiming to be Jesus? Yeah, we need to go back to the Olivet Discourse. <laughs> we need to hear what Jesus says, because he says, many will come saying, I am the Christ. And you punch him in the face. Gail, punch. (laughs) If you look at these signs, it's really interesting. The signs of the end of the age. It's incredible to see how they line up with the seven seals in Revelation. The seven seals in chapter six through, uh, I think, seven and eight, maybe. um, The seal judgments line up nearly identically with this. Um, And so Jesus says the first sign, you know, false Christ will come on the scene and look over there in Revelation chapter six, verses one and two, where we see the first seal is the Antichrist coming on the scene. Antichrist, you know, we kind of think of that as like, I'm Antichrist, you know, but really what it means is in place of Christ, people claiming to be the Christ. And uh, we see him coming on the scene. It's the first, you know, as you look in, in Revelation, there's a scroll and it's got seven seals on it. And everyone's like, who's worthy to open the scroll? And some studies, you know, men who are, are expert in scrollology have said it seems to be because it's written on the inside on the back that it's, it's like a title deed. So some scholars have said this, this scroll is the title deed to earth. And in heaven, they ask, who is worthy to claim that title deed to the earth back? And it says they looked in heaven and earth and under the earth. No one was found worthy. And then finally, someone says, we found the one worthy. And this one came who looked like a lamb that had been slain, who was worthy to open the scroll. And so you see, he, he opens the seven seals. And each one of these seven seals, it's the first seven judgments during the tribulation. And so as he takes the first seal, we uh, read there, Revelation 6, 1, I saw when the lamb opened one of the seals and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a loud voice like thunder, come and see. And I looked and behold a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him and he went out conquering and to conquer. I remember the first time I read this uh, when I was old enough to read um, (laughs) and I was like, wow, this guy's awesome riding a white horse. Woo! conquering to conquer, you know, it's Jesus. Yeah. Most of us, if I were to ask you, who is this guy? That's Jesus, you know? Um, well, yeah, he, he kind of looks like Jesus, doesn't he? In fact, in Revelation chapter 20 or actually chapter 19, uh, you see Jesus, he's riding on a white horse, you know, and he is conquering. Uh, but we see this guy, he's got a Stephanos on his head, a temporary crown. He, he only has authority for a little bit of time. He comes just looking majestic, you know, he's got an air or he's got a a bow, but what does he not have arrows? You know, Daniel tells us that this guy, he's going to go conquering, not with, um, you know, force, but he's going to go with this golden tongue that he has just this incredible suave speech. You know, people he'll talk and, and everyone will, uh, just, Oh, you're wonderful. You know? Um, and, and he'll go out at the first part of his, his ruling and reigning. He'll go out almost as a peacemaker and he's going to go make a treaty with, uh, between Israel, uh, and, and Palestine. And so, uh, you just see an interesting correlation of the signs that Jesus has. And we're going to only do this one today. That's as far as we made it today. But then as we're going to look at the, the seal judgments at the same time, they just link up. I don't know what that means exactly, but it's just cool to observe, huh? And um, we'll figure out what it means as we go along a little bit more. We'll never have it all figured out. Um, you know, only in, when we're in heaven will the, the whole mystery be revealed. And it, but it's exciting to study. So as Stuart comes up, you know, what's the point of all this? You know, I really don't want to just waste our time by giving you guys a bunch of numbers. Like, hey, did you know that if you got silver dollars and you stuck them two feet thick all the way across Texas and you could pick up one and that'd be really crazy? <laughs> Wow, I'm going back to that church. You know, that's not my point. You know, I I don't want to just give you statistics and facts and things like that. 
I want to give you Jesus. Jesus is what matters. The gospel is what matters. And everyone who has these different positions, or most of them, they all know that's what matters in in the study of eschatology. But you know, there's one more word. There's a lot more vocab words that I want to give you guys, but there's one that's on my heart as we close. And that's the great white throne judgment. And that's found in Revelation chapter 21, where anyone who's not a believer in Jesus Christ will stand before him and they'll plead their case and they'll tell of all the good things that they've done. You know, it says that the books will be opened there in the court and the books of all of their works, the things that they've done. But then there's another book that's open and it's called the Lamb's Book of Life. And it says there that if anyone's name is not written in the Lamb's book of life, he'll be cast down into the lake of fire where he'll be tormented forever and ever. So whether you may go through a time of wrath on this earth called the tribulation, or hopefully you're a Christian and and you'll escape that time, or whether, you know, the only time of wrath you would see was for eternity, which is a big one. Romans chapter five, let me read it to you. Romans chapter five, verse nine says this much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. If you don't have Jesus, you've got a time of wrath coming upon you might be on this earth, might not be, but it's coming and praise God that he made a way for us to escape that when he came and laid down his life as a sacrifice, he took our place on that cross. It should have been us. It should have been us having God's wrath poured out. But he came sinless, living a perfect life, and humbled himself to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Man, receive that sacrifice. Receive that gift. Escape that time of wrath. That's why he came, to seek and to save the lost. And so, Lord, I just pray in this place that knees would bow before you while there's still a chance One day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And I plead with you that each person in this room would bow the knee now out of willingness and joy and worship rather than out of compulsion in the time to come, a forcing of the knee to bow. And if that's you today, you can just in your heart, in the quiet place, ask Jesus to save you from the wrath to come, to take his sin, your sin upon him, to wash you clean, to give you a new heart and a new mind, a new life. Just in the, the simplest way you know how, you can do that in your heart this morning. And Lord, we as Christians, we want to watch because we don't know when you're coming. The wicked servant says in his heart, my master delays his coming. He's not coming, he's not coming. Lord, we just wanna have eyes fixed on you. Like First John says that when you come, we wouldn't be ashamed at your coming. And he who has this hope purifies himself just as he is pure. Lord, that we would live each day as the imminent return of Christ could happen at any second. Purify us, Lord. Give us discernment in these days where men are claiming to be Christ. And just watching that video, I just felt dirty watching it as this man claimed to be Jesus because he's so deceitful and all these people have been tricked by him. Give us discernment, Lord, that we would test everything according to your word. And our hearts cry out, come, Lord. Come, Lord, quickly. Let's stand. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County in Prineville, Oregon. For more information on Calvary Chapel of Crook County or to contribute to this ministry, check out our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com or you may write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon 97754. Thank you for listening and God bless.